Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John talks to the Jordanian Minister of Finance, Mohammed Al-Essas, about the Jordanian economy before, during, and after COVID-19. Then, John McKinley and I discuss the impact refugees have had on Jordan. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Mohammed Al-Essas currently serves as the Minister of Finance for the Kingdom of Jordan, where he previously was the Minister of Planning and International Cooperation and an economic advisor to His Majesty King Abdullah. He has extensive experience in development, having worked in the public and private sectors, as well as academia. We first met 25 years ago when he was a freshman at Harvard, and his energy and intelligence clearly distinguished him in a class of more than 250 students that I was helping teach. Mohammed, welcome to Babel. Thank you, John. Uh, what a delight to be talking to you after all these years. And thank you for having me today on uh, this podcast. Give us a picture before COVID-19 hit Jordan. You were Minister of Finance. You were doing a lot of things. What's the picture of the economy you were looking at? What did you think your 2020 was going to look like? In order to understand uh, how we received the COVID challenge, it's important to understand that Jordan at that time has just emerged from one of the most challenging economic crises of any countries uh, in the world. We've endured over a decade of exogenous shocks uh, worth 44% of our GDP. Our GDP per capita declined uh, roughly 14%. We welcomed waves and waves of refugees as the war intensified in Syria and we decided to be on the right side of history in opening our borders to the most vulnerable. Our trade routes were closed as Syria and Iraq went through their own internal challenges. And overnight, we lost 97% of our energy supply as Egypt faced its Arab Spring and the security in Egypt basically led to a breakdown of the energy supply in the form of natural gas that we received from them. During this time, we decided that we need to regain competitiveness So as the year started, we've put in place what I'd like to call a recovery budget. We decided to increase our capital expenditure for the first time in many years. And we cut a number of inefficiencies. And our focus was growth and fighting and curbing tax evasion. So we're looking at this year to be a very different year, an inflection point in our growth trajectory. And sadly, COVID hit and the story changed. Now, as part of that, I remember us talking about this London initiative, a a large commitment by Jordan, a large commitment by the international community to help the Jordan economic recovery. And you had a five-year growth and reform matrix. What happened to that matrix? Indeed, Joan, uh, we've put together a matrix of structural reforms. And we decided that the best way to deal with the economic situation, Jordan, is to embark on an intense a structural reform plan that involved pretty much every aspect of the economy. We had two choices as COVID hit, as all other countries in the world faced. We could firefight or we could put in place while we address the health ramifications of COVID-19, the basis for our future trajectory. We did not use COVID-19 as an excuse to actually delay it, but we actually pushed a number of these reforms. And as we were fighting COVID on the health front, we were also pushing an intense uh, reform agenda economically. 
Which is hard because you're looking at greater unemployment. You're looking at reduced government revenues. The IMF revised this estimates for Jordan, its growth estimates from 2.3% GDP growth to a 3.4% contraction. A large part of the Jordanian labor market is in the informal sector. Economically, what have the last three months looked like for Jordan? How does it feel to ordinary Jordanians as the country is going through in many ways, the two transitions of, on one hand, your reform efforts, and on the other hand, a reduction in economic activity uh, due to COVID? You know, the most concerning part of that diversal in projection is, if we keep in mind that in spite of all the circumstances I just mentioned to you about the challenges of the past decade, our economy continued to grow at 2%, in spite of all these massive challenges. We are now focused on ensuring whatever we do, we shorten the time for recovery. And that's why our response was swift and decisive. We've actually were one of the first countries in the world to implement an immediate and comprehensive lockdown that we made the testing free and available for all. We lowered our sales tax on key protective equipment, such as hand sanitizers, gloves, masks. We delivered food and other necessary items to those in need. We've expanded our safety nets to reach daily waged labor who were most vulnerable from these closures. The economic price of it, needless to say, is massive. But we firmly believe that was the best ethical and economic response to this health challenge. So what kind of economic assistance can you get from the IMF, for example? And what is the IMF asking for in return? Frankly, our relationship with the IMF could not have been any better. This month, for example, uh, Jordan received a rapid financing instrument of approximately $396 million, which is 85% of our quota as part of the COVID response. In addition, back in March, the IMF approved our extended fund facility program, $1.3 billion. Having said that, what I found most important in this relationship is it's not merely monetary or a checklist. We've been engaged in a number of technical assistance programs that focused on improving our debt management, attraction of investment, tax and customs administration reform, And I think it's important that the essence of it is Jordan owning its structural reform agenda and not waiting for IFIs to come and try to push implementation in this direction or another. We're doing this because we want to create jobs for our citizens. We want to improve the workplace for our women. And there is no shortcut to that. The only path forward is through hard, deep structural reform. Other than the IMF, what are the principal external sources of funding for a reform program in Jordan? And what are the internal sources of funding that you're looking for? We're fortunate in Jordan in having a robust and strong banking sector. We also have a well-endowed social security investment fund. And, and we can tap into both of these uh, resources. Having said that, Because we know that the biggest challenge the private sector faces in this COVID-19 situation is access to liquidity, we decided not to, as a government, crowd out private sector on the lending front. For that reason, we focused our effort on looking for external financing needs. It's really heartening the U.S., 
UK, France, Germany, the rest of the EU and the GCC who during COVID-19 were facing intense challenges at the home front. Yet they were also helping Jordan meet its financing needs, which allowed us really to leave the domestic financing to the private sector. It's a crowded list of countries that are trying to get help getting through this. How does this play out in the future? How do you think it'll play out between countries that are doing the right thing, attracting aid versus countries that are perceived to be vital, and then getting urgent assistance to keep them from toppling? Joe and I participate in the G20 meetings uh, for ministers of finance and governors of central banks. Frankly, a lot of the effort has focused on reaching out with support and uh, financial assistance to the poorest countries, and that's important. But it's important to remember that just as COVID-19 spreads across borders without discrimination, so is the economic and financial aftermath of this disease. This is a situation where we have to avoid the worst economic ramifications together as, as humanity, because I think the challenge of not doing so will leave nobody immune from it. You've talked about the importance of the private sector in driving reform, making a more attractive investment climate for people. And at the beginning of our conversation, in the COVID world, what can you do to attract significant private sector investment over the next three years? What kind of returns do you think investors are going to expect in the near term? And what kinds of things do you think in this COVID-inflected world are going to worry investors? Investment looks for balancing high return with uh, managed risk. Let's take them each on its own. On high return, Jordan has one of the best educated labor forces worldwide. Our female labor participation in the labor force has, I believe, roughly 68 to 70% of them have tertiary university degrees. In fact, we have a very vibrant startup culture in Jordan. The World Economic Forum every year picks the top 100 startups in the Arab world as contributors for the fourth industrial revolution. And this export of services has enabled Jordan to withstand the previous shocks that I mentioned, which included physical closures of borders. Hence, when you look at managing risk, you can consider the past decade that Jordan went through as a dress rehearsal for the COVID-19 situation. As an investor, I think this sends a lot of assurances about a country's ability to withstand a stress test such as COVID provides. And I believe we have a convincing case of balancing reward and risk in Jordan while accessing over a billion people in export markets through leveraging our free trade agreements with the U.S., with the Europe, and with the rest of the Arab world. So you think people will still be looking for opportunities in emerging and frontier markets, regardless of a, a sort of consolidation and, and maybe a breakdown in some globalization as a consequence of all this? Frankly, John, this is a key question. If you think about the world pre-COVID-19, we were headed on a deglobalization trajectory. Trade wars were intensifying. The UK left the Eurozone. I think the lessons learned from COVID is 
the challenge has to be faced through a collaborative approach. And I'm not saying this in a romanticized theoretical fashion. If you're a business, one lesson from COVID-19 is you cannot concentrate your supply chain focusing only on one source, China or otherwise, because while you can access it at a lower cost, your exposure to risk is intensified. And therefore, if I'm a private sector uh, leader, I would be looking at diversifying my supply chain. I believe the COVID-19 challenge is the largest economic challenge since the Great Depression. It is a massive simultaneous demand and supply shock. But ultimately, I believe in our ability in getting out of this collectively. And there is a lot of money that's looking for safe places to be placed and balancing risk with reward. And I'm hoping that as this money considers its next destination, Jordan would be on its list. So as a final question, you're looking at cutting wasteful expenses. You're trying to reduce taxes. You're, you're spending a lot. You're trying to both save money and fix your regulatory environment. What do you think Jordan needs to invest in right now, other than the regulatory piece, other than the governance piece? As you look forward to this new world, what are the investments you believe Jordan needs to make to, to flourish in that world? I think that's an important question because it keeps our focus on the long term rather than the immediate firefighting that everybody has to engage in given the situation. You know, John, you and I uh, lived in uh, Egypt at different times. I lived there during the revolution and I remember one of my friends at the time told me, um, uh, may you live in interesting times turns out to be a curse. And interesting times is what we've been living here in, in Jordan and the rest of the world in the past time. We're no strangers to it as a region. We're no strangers to it as a country. And in fact, our prompt and swift response to this crisis, I think, is a manifestation of our previous experiences there, sadly, for better or for worse. During this time, we've decided to invest in different opportunities. As everybody was concerned about the transmission of germs, especially uh, when using cash, we saw this as an opportunity to push e-payments, which is a great path for us to both improve our revenue collection and having a better understanding of what's going on in the economy, but also in formalizing informal areas of the economy. In March alone, the number of e-payment transactions that took place are more than the past three years collective. And I believe we need to continue in investing in leapfrogging towards more e-payment, more startup activity, and to empower it. Uh, we need to digitize. We've built a number of platforms, which were, by the way, built pro bono by our entrepreneurs, by our startup companies, for scheduling delivery of food to lessen or to increase the, uh, social distancing and to issue digital permits at the time of the quarantine. Continuing to invest in digitizing the economy is important. Continuing to fight informality, as I think we had a golden opportunity because of the ramifications on daily wage labor, and we insisted as we were issuing permits to go back to, uh, to work, that any company or firm that goes back to work had to formalize, and we dropped the cost of doing that, to encourage more and more of them to formalize and to register. And ultimately, we have been engaged on an intense tax evasion fight. 
which as you can imagine is not an easy thing to do not only technically but politically but we decided as our response to the crisis was swift and as we gained political capital because of that we will use this political capital to put jordan on a safe fiscal path going forward i think between digitization education and really fighting evasion and bringing everybody under the rule of law in this country we can build the basis for a jordan that can continue to be resilient to shocks but can finally start bringing down the unemployment challenge providing hope for its youth and and really delivering on the moderation and stability promise that jordan symbolizes Ahmed, that's a very ambitious agenda, and I, I wish you all kinds of luck, both in the near term and then also building on the successes you've had in the last few months as you take Jordan onward. Thank you very much. Thank you, John, and I hope we can uh, we can meet face to face soon. Hopefully, I look forward to it. Thank you. Next up, John McKinley and I talk about the impact refugees have had on Jordan. To start us off, who are the Syrian refugees that are in Jordan? So I think it's important to remember that there's not one type of refugee in Jordan. So firstly, Jordan is host to a number of different refugee communities. There are Palestinians, there are Iraqis, there are refugees from Sudan, from Ethiopia and elsewhere. I think they have refugees from 20 countries. A huge amount. And it's also important, I think, to say that the conditions that each of these groups face are different as well. But when we think about Syrian refugees, there's also a huge range. And there are certainly refugees who might look or, or live in conditions that we think of in, in, in terms of refugees. I mean, the Zatari refugee camp is the second largest in the world, and there are a number there. But really importantly, 81% of Syrian refugees do not live in refugee camps. And so for lots of these people, they might live in apartments and houses, and they really blend into the local community much more. The Jordanian and Syrian dialects of Arabic are quite similar. There are family networks that span across the two countries, especially in the north. And so sometimes some of these people are living with their relatives and they might not sort of look like the image of refugees that, that we commonly think about. And it's also, I think, important to say that we don't really know how many there are. The UN has officially registered over 670,000, but the Jordanian government says the numbers are actually much closer to 1.3 million. And because lots of Syrians choose for various reasons not to register as, as a refugee, it's very, very difficult to know for certainty how many there are. And the UN hasn't heard from some of the 600,000 plus that they registered at one time. It's not that they know where 600,000 Syrians are within Jordan. Right. What is Jordan's approach to refugees? Jordan was a little bit shaped by the large Palestinian population, people who in many cases came over from the West Bank, either in 1948 or in 1967 after wars with Israel. It is thought that people of Palestinian descent represent more than half the citizens of Jordan. There is a, a not quite an ethnic divide, but there is a, a demographic divide between Jordanians who are originally from the East Bank of the Jordan River 
and Jordanians who were originally from the West Bank of the Jordan River. But Jordan has never taken the approach that Lebanon did of denying citizenship. Rather, Jordan's extended citizenship, it's brought Palestinians into the population. I think there's wariness about tipping the demographic balance too far, but there also is a sense of empathy with refugees from Syria that we haven't seen in, in other countries. Another sort of key difference in, in the Jordanian approach has been a very, I think, again, sort of forward-looking and clever strategy of linking international assistance for refugees with infrastructure development in Jordan. As the minister just said, we're performing a good for the international community. We're a service for the international community by hosting all of these refugees. They're not going to Europe. They're not going elsewhere. And in exchange, we need help. But we need help that will not only benefit refugee communities, but that will benefit host communities as well. And so they have tied it to infrastructure projects. And even in through the Jordanian Compact, which has become famous, I think, in the development world for how countries deal with refugees, they've tied it to trade incentives as well with external powers such as the EU. What do we know about the impact refugees have had on the Jordanian economy? So I think it's important to differentiate between the impact that Syrian refugees have had and the impact that the Syrian conflict has had. It's very clear that the Syrian conflict has had an enormously detrimental impact on the Jordanian economy. The World Bank has just come out with a report, which John and I actually contributed to in, in, in a small way, which lays out some of these impacts. They say that the conflict pushed poverty up in Jordan by 4%. Annual GDP growth was slowed by 1.6% in Jordan, purely as a result of the Syrian conflict. But that's not really about refugees. I mean, that's part of it. But it's also about the fact that trade was disrupted. It's about the fact that foreign direct investment slowed because international investors were worried about instability in the region. It's about the toll it took on tourism. So it's a whole host of other reasons. So in terms of refugees, I think refugees have clearly had an impact on service provision and put a strain on, on Jordan's public services. But in terms of the labour market, we often hear that refugees result in higher levels of unemployment. But there's some interesting sort of nuggets from this, this New World Bank report, which say that actually in Jordan, where there are areas with the lowest concentration of refugees, there's actually higher increases in unemployment rates. So that implies that refugees are not the cause of unemployment in Jordan, and that actually they have stimulated employment of Jordanians as well as Syrians. How has COVID-19 affected the situation for refugees in Jordan? Refugees are obviously vulnerable because they don't necessarily have the same access to health care. They often live in more crowded circumstances they often don't have access to water and other things that let you wash. Jordan, though, has really been at the forefront in the Middle East in terms of an early and complete lockdown. Their caseload of COVID-19 has been lower per capita than any country in the region. Uh, in many ways, it feels like the technocrats protected Jordan from COVID-19. The danger is we don't know when we're done with COVID-19. And if there's a second wave, Jordan is in many ways vulnerable because of the economic tolls that Will was just mentioning, vulnerable because the population has swelled tremendously, 
vulnerable because they are still pulling out of this lockdown that they did for three months. I think that the challenge is not how does Jordan go forward, but how does Jordan go forward if there's another wave of COVID-19 that washes away many of the successes of Jordan's uh, getting through the last wave? And one other thing I think that makes refugees particularly vulnerable to COVID is the fact that the majority of refugees work in the informal sector and so don't have access to the same kind of protections that those in the formal sector do. Often they rely on day labour and and so this really gets decimated uh, in something like a lockdown. So as John said, a, a second a second wave could really be devastating. One very positive thing in that regard, though, is that the Jordanian government has just announced that they're going to allow Syrians to apply for work permits to all sectors of the Jordanian economy, which is, I think, a, a move that really should be commended. And, um, and, and I hope that they will reap the benefits of this as well, because refugees have the ability to boost a whole variety of sectors. And so fingers crossed that the Jordanian model becomes a model for other countries dealing with with large refugee populations in the future. The minister talked about efforts to formalize the informal economy. Are refugees in Jordan being included in those efforts? They are. And one of the interesting things that Jordan pioneered on a technology level, there are Jordanian companies that were involved developing technology. So ATMs could use iris scans to identify card owners. And so they incorporated that into relief payments for refugees. And there's a way in which what Jordan is doing is trying to twin Jordanian technology and that technology that's developed in Jordan with this refugee population to efficiently and effectively deliver services, to deliver relief, to make sure that identity is identity. It feels to me like it's very much part of a whole, which not only advances Jordanian society, but also advances the Jordanian technical economy. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Babel. Tune in next week for a meze on Egyptian talk shows that challenge traditional gender roles. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.